Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today I'm speaking with health professionals on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. Larry Brilliant is a former professor, senior advisor, author, and scholar. Currently he is the chair of Ending Pandemics and the former chair of the National Biosurveillance Advisory Subcommittee under President George W. Bush. Thank you for joining us, Larry. It's so good to hear your voice again. Oh, it's wonderful to hear you, my friend. Let me start with this. How's your spirit, my friend? How are you doing these days? How's your spirit? Oh, um, I think it's good. Uh, you know, uh, I learned in India that if you can lose yourself and mm. find something to do for other people, it's that's the real medicine. And uh, I get calls nightly from people who are in hospitals who are terrified they're on a ventilator or about to go on one, or I get calls from doctors who just don't know what they're going to do. Um, and I have it's a privilege to get a chance yeah. to talk. Well, I want to speak to you for lots of reasons, but especially because this isn't the first pandemic you have known or gone through or dealt with very directly. Um, so what are, what's the difference? What are the differences between the coronavirus and other pandemics you've lived through in terms of severity and the widespread frequency of illness? Well, let me put it in context, and, and these are... I'll start with a pandemic I did not live through, which was 1918. I am old, but not that old. Uh, that was what's called the Spanish flu. It's not fair to Spain. Uh, every country in the world that was fighting in the Great War, World War I, had military censorship, and they hid, suppressed the disease. They didn't want their armies to seem weaker. Spain was the only country that was neutral, and when a member of the royal family got this Spanish flu, they just announced it. Um, they were the first country that admitted that they had this pandemic and they got stuck with the name. It's not fair. But that, let's call that the great influenza. Uh, that killed somewhere between 30 and 100 million people at a time that the world's population was between 1.5 and 2 million. It's almost unthinkable that today would be maybe as much as 300 million people dying. Um, it's, it's a level of death that we can hardly fathom. This is not that. This is not the zombie apocalypse. This is not a mass extinction event. But it is going to be worse than the other three influenza pandemics we've had in this century. 1957, uh, an influenza pandemic that killed 1 million people. 1968, an influenza pandemic that's called the Asian flu because it began in Asia and destructed, like, like this one, I think it had a tremendously negative effect on, on stock markets and people's livelihoods. So most of the people in the financial world know that one. And in 2008, the swine flu. So we've had two bird flus and two swine flu pandemics in the last 100 plus years. That last one is the one that I'm most interested in, the 2008 swine flu, because I did live through that and I did help with that a little bit. And that was a, a pandemic that began 
with us all fearing that it would look like the swine flu from, 2000, from 1918. We expected and worried that there'd be 30 or 50 million dead. And in fact, the, the virus circulated in the world and infected more than 2 billion people. But it didn't have the lethality that was feared. So we escaped. We escaped by luck, by the turn of a roulette wheel on, on the genome of the virus. But that's the one that people thought about so much. Um, and a, a group of friends of mine and I decided that we wanted to do something to make people realize what a real pandemic is like. So we made this movie called Contagion, which is now being watched by everybody, which is kind of makes me feel odd. Um, but we made that movie to show people what a real pandemic would look like, the social dislocation, the difficulty of making the vaccine, the hucksters that would try to game the system and the heroes, the, the epidemiologists and physicians. Uh, we wanted an homage to those, those heroes. Um, it, it's important for people who've seen that movie to realize that the virus that we are dealing with now, COVID, is much less severe than the one we did in Contagion. So if I placed it in perspective, it's less than we had in 1918, less than we showed in Contagion, but more than we had in the Asian flu of 68 and the pandemic of 57. So just to put it in perspective, we've lived through two uh, very recently that were a little less bad. Uh, we haven't lived through one as bad as this one, but it's not as bad as either the fictional virus in Contagion or the 1918 great influenza. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you said the COVID pandemic is the most dangerous of your lifetime and will cause or could cause global disruption on a scale we have not seen in more than 100 years. Yes, I, I think we're seeing that now, to be honest. When has there ever been a global shutdown the way there is? When have countries barred each other from traveling in? When have... Uh, and, and, and I would be honest and I would say... We've done a terrible job in the United States of preparing ourselves for this. It's not just that the president fired the admiral who was responsible at the National Security Council for pandemics, but also the whole staff of the U.S. government that was looking after pandemics. And in addition, defunded our efforts to strengthen the healthcare system of 37 countries in the poorer part of the world, from which most pandemics do come. Um, and on top of that, our, my beloved CDC, where I train and I love it so much, really bungled uh, the distribution of test kits. And the president then spent two weeks saying that this virus was a, a democratic hoax, fraud. And people who listened to him didn't wash their hands, didn't practice social distancing, and many of them got sick. You see over and over again how many people from the conservative movement and in, in Fox TV and the, the people around the president have tested positive. It shouldn't be like that, Jim. We should all be practicing social distancing, good personal hygiene, um, helping people that are in need, thinking always. I tell everybody, you know, send money to your local food bank. Uh, the people who are homeless and poor, they can't afford to binge and hoard the way people who've been going out and buying up all the food and toilet paper I've been doing. But we don't have any messaging in a consistent way coming from leadership, bringing us together as a nation, 
letting us know where the disease is by doing rigorous testing. And so people are terrified, um, much more than the virus itself requires. So um, I'm hearing people say that facts uh, are important to counter fear. And you and I know that all of our spiritual traditions talk about the importance of the truth. So it's a deeper question than just facts. It's about truth. And I'm hearing you saying it's been frustrating, uh, all the misinformation being circulated around uh, this virus. How do we correct that? How do we correct the misinformation, which really is, is not telling the truth? Well, we both believe that the truth shall set you free. <laughs> um, you know, in, in my world of epidemiology, which is a kind of a quantitative world of medicine, uh, it is only the truth that can help us find where we should do vaccinations or where we should bring in antiretrovirals or who should be socially distancing and who it doesn't, not that important to do that with. But because we don't have test kits, we don't, we're blind. We're like the prize fighter fighting against three kickboxers in the kickbox, kickboxers in the ring, and we've got a blindfold on. We don't know where the next blow is going to come from. It wasn't that case in South Korea, even though they started off badly. Uh, they were slow. Once the government got into it, they did 350,000 tests at a time that we had done about 10 or 10,000, and they developed an app that let them tell every citizen where there was this coronavirus and what they could do about it. And sometimes they would send a text message to somebody in Seoul and say, there is a patient with coronavirus 100 yards from you to your east. I think if, they, if you did that in America, we'd be angry that the government knew where we were. But in South Korea, what they did is they, they took the equivalent of chicken soup to their neighbors saying, if somebody is sick near me, I'm going to wear my gloves and my mask, but I'm going to bring them food. And it built a sense of community and solidarity. And that's what's lacking is that kind of um, consistent messaging. Uh, if you remember under Ebola, when there was a time that the U.S. might get infected, but more out of just love and compassion, we wanted to put the best team we could to help the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Uh, President Obama hired uh, Ron Klain, and made him the Ebola czar. And he was terrific, and you could go to him and get help, and he organized all the different agencies of the government. That kind of a, a well-organized response to a disease uh, is, is what we need right now, and, and, and it is lacking. It's not the only problem we have. Please understand, I'm not putting everything on the door of, of President Trump, but this slow response and all of this... Um, uh, false news, fake news, I guess, that came uh, out has caused some states in the country to not uh, not do emergency measures. And I'm worried that advice like that, the sense that it's fake, I mean, I've seen figures that 30% of Democrats and 60% of Republicans think that this pandemic isn't really a pandemic. Um, people will hurt themselves by not taking the measures of self-preservation and family care, let alone creation care, that, that, that they should be doing if they believe the scientists. The scientists are not a conspiracy in trying to make a, 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 a viral uh, mountain out of a molehill. The, the scientists are trying to save everybody's lives. Mm -hmm. 
What is the most frustrating piece of misinformation being circulated now that, that you think we need to correct? What's the one or two things that you're most worried about when you see and hear things that are fundamentally wrong, not truthful, that could lead to the greatest damage? Well, I think there was a moment, uh, my friend uh, and colleague uh, that I work with at a group called Ending Pandemics, um, he's a devout Catholic. And when he watched President Trump say that he didn't want that um, cruise ship, Diamond Princess, to dock at a port in California, because if it touched American soil, then the cases that were in the cruise ship, which were mostly Americans, that those cases of, of, of coronavirus that were in the cruise ship would be counted against the U.S. total and make his scorecard look bad. <laughs> and this friend of mine just weeped, a doctor who's a devout Catholic, and heard that the president of the United States did not want to bring Americans ashore to give them medical care because he thought that it would hurt those numbers. That's not who we are. You don't do that. Um, I think that's that's not something about the virus that I worry about. I, I worry about the virus. I worry, is it really transmissible by people who are not symptomatic? Does the outbreak, if we look at the whole outbreak, does it look more like a iceberg where six-sevenths of it are underwater and we can't see how big it really is? Or does it look like a pyramid where everything is on land and we can actually see all the cases, but we haven't quite figured out whether they're the top of the pyramid, which might be people who pass away, or the next round, people who are in hospitals on, on ventilators, and then down below are all the asymptomatic cases. If, if we could tell that, we could tell how worried we should be. Well, you're helping us see this truthfully, uh, to be as worried as we should be. But you also said something I was very struck by in the uh, in your recent interview with Wired Magazine, you said, I'm a scientist, but I'm also a person of faith. And I can't ever look at something without asking the question of, isn't there a higher power that in some way will help us to be the best version of ourselves that we could be? Then you describe things you're seeing where people are doing that, uh, doing heroic things, uh, uh, sacrificial things, uh, amazing things, and that you hadn't, you've never seen this kind of voluntarism you said happening before. Say, say what you're seeing, and why what you're seeing gives you uh, that hope in the face of such uh, such terrible numbers, cases, and death tolls that rise almost every morning when we get up. What are you seeing that makes you feel like there's there's some real hope here? Well, I, I, for a while, there was kind of an intergenerational battle uh, where uh, you, you would hear over and over again, well, this is a disease just of old people who are going to die anyway. <laughs> and and mm -hmm. we, we we looked at the millennials, and, and they were partying in South Beach for <laughs> for summer break, and it, they felt, as always, immortal, but in this case, invulnerable also. Um, and so, yes, it's true, I think, that the millennials thought that they were being given uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card because they were, you were young. What I didn't expect was to see so many millennials who volunteered to deliver food to people who are adults in nursing homes or in uh, adult care facilities. Um, how many young people 
are putting on gloves and masks and taking care of the elderly all over this country. It's 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 amazing. And and how many nurses go into the hospital every day to treat coronavirus patients when we don't have enough masks? It, it, this is unthinkable. It's America. But we don't have enough masks. So hospital after hospital is reusing masks way beyond their safety sell-by date. We don't have enough um, uh, gowns, protective gear, personal protective gear. And yet nurse after nurse and doctor after doctor are going to work knowing of their own personal risk. I have two good friends who are physicians who are both in quarantine right now because they tested positive. Um, that's the kind of thing I'm seeing. Um, so many people who continue to volunteer, take care of their neighbors, um, and risk them their own well-being. It's it's the beginning, I think, of maybe the good thing that will come out of this. Maybe it will bring us together again. Maybe I'm just a, a Pollyanna kind of guy, but you know this schism between conservatives and, and, and liberals and progressives. We we really all have the same meat. Our genome is the same. We're not we're not any different. We just saw that Prince Charles got the coronavirus. I mean, if, if being a, a prince next in line to the, to the throne in England doesn't protect you, isn't that a sign that no one is that much different than everybody else, that, that they can get this disease? Maybe this will remind us that we're all in it together. Mm-hmm. So how can we best, let's say, leverage uh, our faith and the faith community to get out the truthful information, combat the misinformation, and even spark, inspire, sustain the kind of sacrificial and heroic behavior that you're just now talking about. How do we leverage faith and the faith community here in a pandemic crisis like this? You know, if the president is using Easter, such a sacred day, and saying that by Easter Sunday, the megachurches will be filled with parishioners, and uh, the country will go back to work. And if doing that, although the Pope has said that there'll be no Easter services, they'll all be virtual. <laughs> I, if, if he really does that, and I don't think he'll be able to, I think the governors will push back against him. And um, If he does that, taking a holiday like Easter and turning it into a disease transmission day, I can't even, I can't even believe that. I can't, I can't imagine that. Since I think this podcast may or may not be timely, if I focus on something so near term, I'll say far better is that we continue to listen to the sermons and whether you're Christian, you listen to a Sunday sermon or you're Muslim and you listen to your imam on Friday or you're Jewish on Saturday or you're Buddhist or Hindu and, and tune in virtually to your services and stay in touch. Online meditation sessions. Um, are wonderful. I mean, I've been listening to Bible readings and Torah readings, and I just listened to a Dharma reading uh, online. I must say, it's easier to get to it instead of driving to the, the church or the mosque or the vihar, and I love it. I'm building it more into my life, and I think that community is the one that will will survive this pandemic. You know, we've been having these uh, virtual uh, phone calls with uh, faith leaders. A hundred faith leaders came on with two days' notice in the first week, 
And they were talking about uh, Bishop Michael Curry, Episcopal Church, who spoke at the royal wedding, said, well, we're going to observe Lent and celebrate Easter virtually. And so on these calls, we help each other do that. Here's an idea. Here's a thought. Here's a resource. Here's a connection. And how do we, I think the, the role or the, maybe the vocation of faith communities in this pandemic are to prevent social distancing from leading to social isolation. How do we do what you're saying? How do we do what you're saying? How do we take the social distancing, which is necessary to love our neighbor right now? You've got to stay distant from them. But on the other hand, how do we keep human isolation from happening? And I think we're going to learn a lot from this and maybe uh, be better at it after this pandemic is over. Yeah, I, I hope that we remember uh, n- not that each other are enemies or weapons because they might be harboring a virus and we start looking at each other so suspiciously we go back to the time of, of lepers when they had bells to warn the village folk that they were coming. I think it's the other way around. I think we we have to remind ourselves that when all this is over, the 97, 98, 99% of us are still going to be alive and kicking. Um, we need to build a community that makes the post-pandemic era one of love and compassion, even if this one is going to be tinged with fear. And we, we shouldn't demonize people who are ill. We have to remember we're supposed to heal the sick, not demonize them, not stigmatize them. It's not, it's not a Chinese uh, disease. It's not a Chinese pandemic. Tell, tell, the, tell folks the story. Some have heard the story, but maybe others haven't, how uh, you once uh, left a Himalayan ashram and a Hindu sage uh, gave you a mission to leave the monastery, travel to Delhi, India, and help eradicate smallpox. Well, I went to India uh, on, a, on a hippie bus. My wife and I, who've been married 50 years, by the way, um, we lived on a hippie bus for a long time, and then in the monastery, we're still married, <laughs> and happily, happily in isolation together. Um, but we lived on these buses and drove from... Uh, Canterbury, England to Kathmandu. Uh, it took us about a year and a half <laughs> and a lot of stories. And then we stayed in a an ashram in Himalayan foothills uh, near a place called Manital in Uttar Pradesh in India. And we we, we studied with a guru named Neem Karoli Baba who we loved so much. And we would I would have been content after an initial period of skepticism and doubt, I have to admit. <laughs> um, I was really quite concerned about all this idol worship going on until I began to understand it as the Hindus understand it, not as my Judeo-Christian background um, understood it. Uh, but but once I I understood who he was and what this community of believers was, I would have stayed there forever. And um, and just you know, we read the Torah, we read uh, the New Testament, we read all all the Gospels, we read the Dhammapada, the Buddhist holy books the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu holy books, the Quran, uh, the Tao Te Ching. It was a wonderful, idyllic experience. And one day he called me, and uh, he called me. The name he had given me was Dr. America, which was kind of a funny name. He said, Dr. America, uh, I want you to go to the World Health Organization, and um, you're supposed to help eradicate smallpox. Smallpox will be eliminated from the world. This is God's gift to humanity because of the hard work of dedicated health workers. Go. 
and I, I didn't understand what he meant. He said, I said, what do you mean? I should write a letter? He said, no, no, go. Get on a bus. Take a train. Go. 17 hours. And I did. I, you know, I, I went and I was still in my ashram clothes. I had hair down to the middle of my back and a big full beard. And I walked into the UN office and I said, hey, I'm here. My guru said that God is going to eliminate smallpox and I'm to play a role in it. How do I sign up? And they kicked me out as <laughs> we would have all done if the situation were reversed. And I repeated that about 15 times. Going back to the ashram, my guru was saying, you're going to get this job. Go back. I go back. <laughs> you know, it was faith that made me have the confidence to go back each time. And I was kicked out. And gradually, I kind of smartened up. I cut my hair, cut my beard, kind of suit. <laughs> I lost the dress. And um, and finally, one day, uh, a Russian doctor who was supposed to come and be one of the epidemiologists on the team, unfortunately, he was sick and he couldn't come. So they had an opening. <laughs> and uh, they had to create a job title and position low enough <laughs> that they could hire me because although I was a doctor, I had no public health or epidemiological experience. Um, and so I started off on the mascot of the team. I was the youngest person on the team, and I stayed for 10 years. And I saw the last case of smallpox. And my faith comes from that too, Jim. I saw um, an India that had a quarter of a million children who died in a year from this horrible disease that had killed maybe as many as half a billion 500 million, and the estimates are 300 to 500 million, from 1900 to 1980. I mean, remember the summer of love in 67? Two and a half million people died of smallpox that year. It wasn't that long ago. And it went from that to zero smallpox in three years. And the last cases of, of virulent major smallpox in the wild was a little girl named Rahima Banu, and she lived in Bangladesh on an island and I went to visit her and when she recovered from smallpox one out of three died we're talking about this pandemic killing two percent or one percent thirty five percent of the people who got smallpox died but she recovered and when she recovered and the scabs fell off her and the sun of the hot Bengal sun cooked those viruses and they died that was the end of an unbroken chain of transmission that went back to Pharaoh Ramses V. Indeed, many people think that smallpox was one of the ten biblical plagues in Exodus. Svat, boils. And the end of a disease that lasted that long, done, you know, to me it looked like magic that we were able to eradicate that disease. How could I ever not be optimistic? And my faith was... You know, my my faith was supercharged. My guru said, go work on this impossible job. Smallpox is terrible disease. is going to be eradicated. This is God's will. Go. And I saw the last case. I'm... And I led you to become the, the chair of eradicating pandemics. What a wonderful story. But you're still, some people still call you uh, the, the rock and roll doctor, Larry Brilliant. <laughs> I don't mind being called that at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, I still love the Grateful Dead. <laughs> you, I know you do. So, uh, finishing up here with, you have expertise on how many different sectors can collaborate in our response. Uh, we've, we've talked about 
you know, spirituality, faith, traditions, but business, philanthropy, civil society. Um, uh, how how can we become uh, active partners, or maybe even deeper companions uh, in that battle right now? And how this? I think this will change us. We won't be the same. We don't know how. We won't be the same. But how we come together will change how we are afterwards. So how do these different sectors collaborate and really come together as as uh, as, as partners, but even those who are going to uh, uh, show how we can come together as societies? How could this change us in that way? You often bring sectors together. How could this become an occasion for doing that? Well, I think you're giving me way, way too much credit. But But my memory of my first social action and becoming a social activist. I remember when I was infected with the virus of uh, of uh, social activism, and, and it was at the University of Michigan in 1962 uh, when Martin Luther King came to campus. And it was a rainy, terrible day, as Ann Arbor is often, uh, with the rain coming not as we would expect it to come vertically, but horizontally, it seemed like. And uh, very few people came to hear Martin Luther King, who had not yet got his Nobel Prize or, you know, smuggled out the letter from Birmingham jail. But he spoke uh, to a group of maybe 30 or 40 of us in a hall that could have, could have held two or 3,000. And so he laughed and he saw how small the size of the crowd was. And he said, you all come up on stage and sit with me. And so we sat around him, listened to him for several hours. N- none of us were ever the same. That was the moment I was infected with the virus social justice. And what I remember the most is that the the movement for civil rights didn't happen in spite of the church. It happened because of the church. I mean, we would march. I marched with Dr. King a couple of times, the highlight of my life, I think. But we would start off in the in the afternoon or the morning, uh, you know, at the Baptist church where we would have breakfast. And then uh, as we were marching, we'd, we'd take a break at the Catholic church and we'd have lunch. And we keep keep marching, and we go over to the synagogue, and and they give us a snack at four o'clock. And it was as if the entire religious and spiritual community had conspired, and they brought in the business world, and they brought in all these other sectors. And my question to you is: Where is the church today? Where's the leadership position in dealing with this pandemic? Where's the clarion call that comes from? the religious community, about how we should deal with each other in this time. And I would extend it. How about in these political times, when there's so much divisiveness, and so much lies and disingenuity, where's the religious community to bring us together to heal that rift and to give us the spiritual lessons that will allow us to overcome not just the virus of corona, but the virus of hate, which is the most pernicious virus of all. We're where is that? We need that. So while we need science, uh, certainly the medical professionals, the heroic nurses and doctors, uh, you're kind of saying that we need uh, a spirituality for uh, a pandemic like this. What, what, what kind of spirituality do we need uh, to find in a pandemic like this one, to go forward through this crisis and then go beyond it? in ways that are different, making this different. We need to be reminded that that it's times like this 
that force us or allow us or give us permission to be the best version of ourselves that we could possibly be. This is a time, what does it say? It's times like this that try men's souls. Well, of course, that was just men. It tries all people's souls, men and women and everybody. You know, I remember in the smallpox program, you know, we had people of every country, every religion, every race, all working together. But we were brought together by this existential threat that smallpox posed for us. This virus poses an existential threat to a lot of things. Not to us as a species, but it's a threat to democracy. It's a threat to commerce and well-being and threat to our way of life, I think, in many ways. It, it, it requires the spiritual community to come together and guide us. There are so many moral decisions that get made under the guise of policy or expediency. We need to hear the voice of our pastors and rabbis and imams and Buddhist monks and all of them. I mean, where are we without them? We'll be lost. Mm-hmm. Well, my friend, uh, is there anything at this moment you're speaking to us as a, a medical uh, professional, uh, someone with great experience on viruses and pandemics, but also as somebody who wants to call out our best spirituality? Is there anything else you'd like to say to people who are feeling stuck and fearful and not knowing how to respond in the midst of this? Uh, what is your, uh, uh, your, your your altar call, as we would say in the Baptist churches, <laughs> to them right now? Wash your hands. Here you stay go. Stay home. <laughs> send some food to somebody who needs it. Call somebody that you had a fight with 10 years ago. Make sure all your relatives are safe and extend that notion of, of relatives to everybody. Mm. Lovely. Well, thanks again, Larry, for joining us. Uh, to hear more from Dr. Brilliant, follow him on Twitter at Larry Brilliant. For news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. And if you appreciated this podcast, please share this episode with your friends and family and even enemies, as Jesus calls us to love them, too. And what better way to love someone than to share a favorite podcast? We are available on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Blessings to all of you, and thank you, Larry, for joining us today. It's been a, a delight and honor always to be with you. Much love, my friend. This is Jim Wallace for the soul of the nation. God bless you.